Welcome to the Trial Talks Podcast, a thought-provoking series surrounding clinical trial research. We'll be exploring current and future trends of the ever-changing clinical trial landscape as we discuss a variety of topics including virtual trials, patient centricity, novel and unique research, pandemic impact, and more. Join us and our expert guests on a journey through the evolution of clinical trials. Welcome to Trial Talk Season 2. This season is all about the heart of your trial, your patients. We'll be speaking with patient advocates, diversity experts, and hearing directly from some patients themselves in an effort to gain insight into how to improve the patient experience in clinical studies. I'm your host, Fred Martin, Chief Product Officer of Medrio, and today I'm joined by Rose Gerber, Director of Patient Advocacy and Education with the Community Oncology Alliance. Welcome, Rose. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Fred. I'm excited to be here talking about one of my favorite topics, clinical trials. I want to start off and just thank you for all the work that you've been doing. Um, Like many of us, oncology has impacted our lives. And for me, my mom, my sister, my father-in-law, my aunt, and I can go on for days listing people, um, some who are still with us and some who aren't. And there is no better work than you're doing to help bring patient advocacy and focus around oncology and in the marketplace. So thank you for all your great work. But let's help everybody understand all about your great work. And and can you share with us a little about your journey on how you became a patient advocate? Yes, I I certainly can. And I just want to take a moment, though, Fred, um, you know, you just shared about your own personal connection to cancer and, and to clinical trials. And as much as we talk about cancer now, cancer is so out in the open. And in many ways, that's a really good thing. But one of the um, points that I always like to make is when someone like yourself just shared that you've been personally impacted is that a cancer diagnosis is never easy for a family ever. It doesn't matter how much we talk about it now, how much more open cancer patients are and survivors it really still impacts not just the patient, but the family members. So I'm, I'm sorry to hear about any of the challenges that your own family members um, have gone through. And it sounds like you probably had your own role as a caregiver throughout that process. So I know a lot of people uh, like to say, you know, it's always about the patient, you know, let's be patient centric. And I certainly believe all that, but I'm very, uh, I think I'm a little bit different in one way and that I think it's not just about the patient. It's also about the people surrounding the patient. Um, So, but to answer your question, a little bit about uh, my own connection and personal background is I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was under the age of 40, uh, which is for anybody who follows, you know, breast cancer uh, in in particular, that's uh, a very young age, less than 5% of breast cancer diagnosis at that time and even now occur in that age group. Uh, So I was a young mother living a pretty amazing, wonderful life in southeastern Connecticut, had a child in kindergarten, a child in the third grade. And um, like many women, I found uh, my cancer while I was showering, felt a lump in my breast. And again, now that I talk about these things quite openly, but at that time, um, you know, I was very private about my own diagnosis. It was, you know, very upsetting, very, you know, shocking. just very, very hard to absorb. And, you know, when I went in to start my cancer treatment, I did find out that I had a rare subtype of breast cancer. I was HER2 positive. The cancer was already in my lymph nodes. As I mentioned, I was young for getting a cancer diagnosis. So it was kind of an avalanche of, you know, bad news. Um, But one of the things that 
kind of stabilized me during all that time was my oncologist um, suggested a clinical trial. And that was my, you know, really like a something that gave me so much hope is just knowing that, okay, I'm going to have the standard of care, which is what all patients, all cancer patients are going to get. And that's a good thing. But even though I had these negative indicators that I also, on top of getting high quality care, I was also going to be given the opportunity to get on a clinical trial. So that's the um, patient part uh, of my story, just to get started. Well, thank you. The journey is a very interesting journey. And as you said, it's the individual and the, the family and caregivers. And it resonates, and it resonates with so many of us out there. Um, you know, I know for my family, and having been the person doing a lot of this with my family, is it never came up to us as ever an option of being in a clinical trial. And partly it's because a lot of family members are in rural locations and not close to large cities. Um, but, you know, that's that's challenge number one. And then challenge number two is I know a lot of people in my family and people I talk with are always afraid of joining a clinical trial. So for you as a patient, how, you know, what were the parts of the clinical trial that were daunting and how did you get through that? And, and what support systems did you have to be able to, to be confident going into a clinical trial? Yeah, Fridge, you make some really good points. Um, the whole clinical trial process can be very daunting because uh, not only are you being introduced to all these different uh, types of treatments that you might get, in my case, um, I had, ex- you know, I, I've had, I had extensive treatment and, and sometimes people use words, you know, like extensive and it's really abstract, but to paint a better picture of what that means is I had eight cycles of chemotherapy. I had 33 treatments of radiation. I also had ovarian suppression. I had five years of hormonal therapy. I had multiple surgeries. I was on three different clinical trials, but the one that I uh, speak about the most is the Herceptin clinical trial, which was a 52-week trial at that time. You know that you're going to get the standard treatment, which in my case was starting off with chemotherapy. Um, and uh, that was an infusion. So also there's different types of chemotherapy right now. A treatment has changed. So a lot of times chemotherapy will be oral. So in my case, I did the infusion as well as oral in the later years. Um, so you're, you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis. You know, in my case, I was dealing with the fear of leaving my young children without a mother because, you know, you, death is a very real thing that you think about at those times. Um, leaving my husband without a wife, you know, and then you're like, okay, now I have to deal with the clinical trial. And in complete honesty, um, you know, anybody who's somewhat familiar with clinical trials knows that you have to, you know, look at this paperwork called the informed consent, and it's very overwhelming. And um, I'm not ashamed to say that at that time, uh, my husband would really, you know, hold my hand and help me make sense of everything just because I would start reading the paperwork and, you know, start crying. And <laughs> there was a time when I really couldn't even talk about my own cancer um, the way I do now. And Fred, also, you said uh, you, you shared with your listeners that in my current role, I am the director of patient advocacy for the Community Oncology Alliance. And we are a national organization um, that represents the independent cancer centers across the country. And uh, for your listeners who may not know this, Uh, The independent cancer centers are where the majority of cancer patients across the United States receive their care. Um, And and I was treated in an independent setting. Um, Of course, when I was a patient, I had no idea. You know, patients don't know, like, this is an academic setting, this is an independent setting. Um, But the reason why I'm sharing that is that um, these, the clinical trial, uh, getting back to the daunting part of it, is that I, I wasn't looking for a clinical trial. 
And that surprises a lot of people because it's easy to assume, oh, you know, Rose is this director and she must have done all this kind of homework to get on this great trial. Um, I mean, I think when I first got diagnosed, I did a little bit of Googling, you know, <laughs> but then it was very overwhelming and got me really scared, especially with the subtype I had. So I was very fortunate that a clinical trial was presented to me as an option. Um, but Fred, you know, you mentioned that, let's say, with some of your family members or acquaintances, that they weren't offered a trial, and maybe it was because they were in a rural area. Um, and that's unfortunate because... What we know now is that patients really do want to participate in trials. And I, one of the really great unique privileges that I have in my role is that I have been to cancer centers across the United States. And I don't mean virtually. I would like to say this was, you know, pre-COVID. I've, I've physically been in these cancer centers from rural Georgia, you know, to major cancer centers in Florida and Texas. And anytime I talk to patients about clinical trials, they, the majority of patients that were on trials were, were on trials because their physician presented as an option. So we still know that, you know, there's a lot of ways to find trials now, whether you go to clinicaltrials.gov or you go to a disease specific group, let's say you have leukemia, so you're going to go to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society uh, to see what kind of trials they have. There's a lot of great resources out there, but still the physician in my mind and my experience, not just my personal experience, but talking to cancer patients and nurses across the United States the physician is the most impactful person in, in helping with trial enrollment. So how do we get the physicians to be aware of what's going on? And how do we also get the sponsors and the CROs to get the word out, partner with the physicians and get this ecosphere moving forward? Because I think, I think that's like one of the biggest challenges for people is getting that awareness and being able to participate in studies that are looking for participants right and left to join them. Yeah, well, what we're seeing now, um, and this is happening with more and more of the cancer centers, I think they're talking about it more, is that it's always happened, um, but now there's more, more discussion around it, is the ideal scenario is that when a patient comes in and presents, that their physician is going to offer them a trial at that point. But now um, what's happening nationally is that there's even more conversation around getting the primary care providers to start talking about clinical trials, just in general, just as part of the conversation, even before a person is diagnosed with cancer and making clinical trials just be part of an ongoing conversation. And that's actually one of my very specific recommendations for um, the clinical research groups is that clinical trials shouldn't be something that is just presented when a cancer patient is diagnosed. And if you think about it this way, um, just as a, a general member of the public, we're all very aware that, you know, preventing cancer is a dialogue that goes on year round that, you know, we want to prevent cancer, you know, ACS can the American uh, Cancer Society, their advocacy arm They're year round, they're always talking about, you know, uh, preventing cancer, you know, or the Prevent Cancer Foundation, preventing cancer, or every single advocacy group out there that's disease specific, they're, they're talking about funding research. It's a year round conversation. And I think that's something that we really need to do with clinical trials as well. Um, and that will help with a lot of the, the myths that are surrounding clinical trials, because we're still seeing all these years later that there is fears about someone getting a placebo or it's not gonna be a safe treatment. But then when you talk to the people like myself who've actually completed the trial process, not only do you not get bad care, you get what I think is superior care because again, you're getting the standard care, uh, but you're also getting additional care because you're on a trial. Um, so I think that that's what we need to keep doing. 
And right now, as we all know, last year, in addition to dealing with the nightmare of COVID and that we're all still dealing with, is we saw a lot of issues arise um, having to deal with health equity. Uh, so now, in my interactions with a lot of the national advocacy groups, the good news is, is that one of the pieces of health equity that's risen to the top in that conversation is the importance of clinical trials. So not only is every advocacy group out there focusing on the need to you know, get more patients enrolled in clinical trials, all ethnic groups, um, but so are all the major pharma companies. Every global company out there is really invested in clinical trials. But yet, even with all that effort, we feel like we're not moving the needle. So what, what is the simplest thing that everyone can do? And it amazes me how many times I've talked about it. And yet, and I know I'm not the only, I'm certainly not the only advocate talking about this. But one um, area that is completely untapped is using the clinical trial participants as ambassadors um, for enrollment in clinical trials. It's, you know, Cancer survivors and especially trial participants, something that they're looking for is they're looking for hope and they want to be engaged. So if more organizations would create opportunities for these trial participants to share their story, whether it's on a, on a podcast, on a news, in a newsletter, on a website, they're so eager to do it. And they're your best voice um, is the actual clinical trial participant. Oh, absolutely. There's no one who can better talk about the experience than obviously those who have been through it and really advocate for it. And as you said, I mean, the, the care is superior. You're getting um, experts and more attention than you would in a normal setting. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot of work though that uh, I think this, this entire market can do for that. And that's, uh, it's so spot on and important work. Rose, you mentioned you know, being a new patient and going into your first appointment with the physician, and it's overwhelming, right? I know from my family experience, when they went in, they just shut down. But what things should they be asking their oncologist about their diagnosis to support them as they move forward with this new information? I think one of the things I would like to remind patients to do, well, there's two things is one in that moment when you're sitting there, you know, with face-to-face -face with your oncologist and you're trying to absorb everything, you know, exhale, you know, physically exhale. And then ask the question, you know, you, let's say they didn't offer you a clinical trial, say, is there any other treatment, for example, a clinical trial that I might be able to participate in? And if they come back and say, well, we're not offering any clinical trials here at this location, the patient doesn't have to stop there. The patient can say, okay, can you connect me with any clinical trials elsewhere? Or if anything comes up, can you write a little note in my medical chart that I am interested in clinical trials? And then the patient can stop right there because we'll just take things in little steps when you're a patient. But that is definitely a way to kind of feel somewhat in control of your situation, to feel hopeful, and again, to feel empowered. So important. You know, you talked about the changes with COVID. What have you seen as some of the positives and maybe even some of the negatives of changes with clinical trials as, as COVID has, you know, shut us down and, and, you know, put us into our homes? And, and how has that affected some of the work you're doing and some of the trials that you've been seeing? Yeah, it's really interesting. Of course, when COVID, you know, 
the first um, first uh, hit, basically right around this time frame, it was really devastating for you know for everybody around the world, but especially for the very vulnerable cancer patients. And what we saw with our cancer centers is they were just incredibly um, incredibly nimble, and and, w- and what they did to take care of their patients and make sure their patients were safe was just was just amazing. Um, basically, what had to happen first was they had to secure the safety of the physical environment. So. Um, you know, patients, only the patients that were in active treatment were allowed to come to the center. Clinical trials initially did take, uh, you know, I hate to use the language, but they did take a hit because there were so many other like huge priorities. Um, but then what surprisingly happened is once we knew that COVID was here to stay, um, we actually had some of our cancer centers that saw an increase in clinical trial participation. And one of the reasons for that was that CMS, um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, had loosened some of their regulations. So this was allowing some providers to be reimbursed for some of the telehealth services. Uh, so that was one way that our cancer centers um, adapted and adopted. And now um, the good news is uh even though we're still dealing with COVID, it's a, it's very real. Unfortunately, um, as we all know, you know, over half a million people have died from COVID, and a lot of patients, a lot of cancer survivors, a lot of caregivers have been have been um, diagnosed with COVID. Uh, so everything is not quite back to normal. But the cancer centers are now doing a really, really great job of being, you know, very innovative in how they're taking care of cancer patients in this new environment. Um, and, and trials still remain something, again, that is very hopeful for patients. So, yes, there was definitely a bump, but even though there was a bump, some practices actually increased their um, trials because of the telehealth option. And that actually gets me to another really important point about, you know, trials going forward. Something that we saw with COVID is we all saw the adoption of technology, so whether it was church groups or grandparents or people that you would never think were, and I, you know, it sounds very stereotypical, but it was also based on, on some truth that a lot of older adults that you would not think would be interested, you know, in participating in something um, virtually suddenly embraced it. So I think that's a huge opportunity uh, for trials going forward. You're going to see, you know, more remote patient monitoring, uh, just more interest from the patients too in doing things digitally. Because we know one of the big barriers for uh, trial participants, too, is actually the physical barriers, like, you know, having to drive to a site that's 40 miles away. You know, they might not have money for gas. They might not have a car. They might not be able to afford Uber. So what what services can be done using technology? I think that's a definitely going to be something positive for clinical trials going forward. I agree. And it's, it's, it's one of those things that I hate to say that there was a positive coming out yes, of COVID. I know what you mean, you know, yeah. it's, 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 this market, you know, in clinical trials um, is a slow market to adopt technology and change. And, you know, even no one really likes change. And that is the one positive that we've seen come out of this is the adoption of new technology or technologies that have been out there and actually gotten mass adoption on them. So it's it's a huge benefit. Um, and I know one of the technologies uh, that you've worked with is uh, COA. Um, can you Talk a little bit about your experience there, especially with CPAN. Yeah, let me talk a little bit about um, COA. So as I was mentioning earlier, the Community Oncology Alliance, is, if you think of us as an umbrella organization, that we represent the cancer centers, the independent, and this means that the physicians own the cancer center. Um, 
and it's the, where the majority of cancer patients receive their care. So what do we mean when we say independent? Well, other types of settings for cancer care would be your big academic centers like MD Anderson, Sloan Kettering, Emory. Um, you would have uh, for-profit cancer centers uh, like Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And even those, they're privately owned, but they're not independent. So the word community, a lot of hospitals, we use the word community, but when we use it, it means that the, phys- the physician owns a practice. And why does that matter? Well, when the physician owns the cancer center, there's less interference from external entities getting between the patient and the doctor. So with COA, what, what our main objective is, um, and COA is the acronym for Community Oncology Alliance, is our main goal is to make sure that these community cancer centers stay open. And the reason for that is it's actually a patient access issue. So when COA was originally founded, it had to do with the fact that Medicare reimbursement policies at the federal level were changing and filtering down to the local level. And by the local level, I mean the state or town level. So um, this changed how cancer services were provided. And what started happening was a lot of cancer centers started closing. So if you're in a big city or, you know, a, a major a major metro area, you know, and your cancer center closes, there might be two or three other cancer centers for you to go to. But this hit rural America really hard. If a cancer center closes in Nebraska, uh, now you have you might have to drive two or three um, hours to go to the nearest cancer center. So that's like our overall goal is to make sure that these community cancer centers stay open since they treat the majority of patients. And at one time, the number of patients being treated in the independent setting was as high as 84%. And then hospitals started buying out these independent cancer centers. And this is well documented. We're very, very transparent as organizations. We have a lot of data on our website for any of your listeners that might want to take a look at what we call a practice impact report. But basically when an independent cancer center is bought out by a hospital, you might have the exact same physician getting the patients getting the exact same treatment, but the cost of care goes up. And it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, in-depth topic, but we do have a lot of information on that. Uh, so that's number one uh, purpose of, of COA. And then we have a lot of subtopics within that, any, basically any threats to the community oncology system, whether that's prior authorization is a topic that some of your listeners might be familiar with. Um, and that, again, is anything that interferes between the patient and the physician. Um, and then within CPAN, CPAN is COA's Patient Advocacy Network. And what we do within CPAN is we now educate the patients and survivors that were treated in these independent settings about the value of community oncology. Uh, So what's very common, and Fred, I'm sure that you probably have even been exposed to this, is um, not all patients when they're done with with, um, their own treatment want to become an advocate. Like I've even had some people say, Rose, I think it's really great that you got involved in advocacy, but I don't want to. (laughs) And I said, that's okay. Not everybody wants to or, or should. But when patients do decide that they want to become involved in advocacy, the most natural path is they will get involved in their own type of disease. So, for example, I got involved with breast cancer because I was a breast cancer survivor. The people, the men with prostate cancer might want to get involved with the prostate group, lymphoma, with the blood cancer organizations. Um but within, within uh, CPAN, what's great is that we're not really disease-specific. So even though we have cancer survivors of all types, we're teaching them about the value of their own story. So your story as a cancer survivor is very important. But my job as the director is to teach them to understand national oncology issues and to think further than their own story, because we can make more impact if we can tell our story but understand it in the bigger landscape. 
Um, so with CPAN, we do have chapters in cancer centers across the United States. Um, and we teach them about keeping their cancer centers open. And frankly, that's not something most patients ever think about. You just don't think about it. Like, I know when I got breast cancer and I was done with all my treatment, I did it, as I shared with you earlier, I had very extensive treatment. So I was in treatment longer than most. Um, I was thinking, I do want to care for breast cancer because you're always afraid it's going to come back even, you know, decades later. But I never thought like, oh, I need to make sure my local cancer center stays open so I can continue to get my treatment at that center. Uh, so that's kind of what we do, the big picture of what we do with, within COA and CPAN. That's great. And it's in, like you said, it's, it's each patient's journey. I know my mother, when she finished her treatment, she said, if one other person comes up and hugs me and tells me how brave I am, I'm going to go crazy. Um, I don't <laughs> want to deal with this anymore. Right. And then a year right. later, a year later, she's, she's, you know, and this was many years ago, a year later, she was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm through that part of my journey. Now I'm at the next part of my journey and my daughter has this and how do I advocate for her? What do I need to do? And so how do you, you know, how do you work through those journeys of getting patient advocates at different stages so that they can then generate awareness in the communities and, and how do you really build that lifespan of someone's journey through having a diagnosis like this? Oh, that's such an important point. You know, some people, um, they really are truly ready or, or in their mind, they're completely ready to be an advocate when they're literally in the chemo chair. And I know this is pre-COVID, you know, cancer centers actually had to stop people from, yeah. you know, filming themselves, you know, um, from the chemo chair. So some people, you know, they they want to start telling their story and they, they leave no detail untold about what they're going through. And then others might not be ready you know, when, again, we're going to focus on people that want to become advocates. They might not be ready for, you know, a few years after. And even and this really surprises people because I've done so many presentations and I've spoken pretty publicly about this. But even my own path to becoming an advocate, um, I had to process my own my own illness first. And for me, that wasn't until several years later. And really, the way I got into advocacy is my, one of my local nurses had asked me to appear in a local clinical trial campaign. So you can see how clinical trials have been a part of my story from the very beginning. And part of the reason why they asked me is because, frankly, I wasn't the face of cancer. You know, I was a younger woman. Um, clinical trials were being offered in my community. And at first I said, sure, you know, I really want to help on my cancer center. Sure, I'll do it. But then I just panicked. I said, I don't really, because at that time I was very private about my story. Um, and, I, and I always like to clarify, I chose to be private. I was not hiding anything because at one point someone told me I was hiding my cancer story because I was private. And I said, no, I'm not hiding it. I'm choosing to be private because my kids were very young and I didn't, my motive was very simple. I didn't want anybody approaching my kids on the, you know, kids can be kids. And I didn't want anyone saying, is your mom going to die? Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. really my biggest fear. That was why I didn't want to be public. Um, but but then when I was getting ready to be photographed for this newspaper ad and, you know, interviewed, I just said, no, I changed my mind. I just, I thought I was ready, but I wasn't. So, you know, so that's the other thing, like now that I have spent over a decade training um, advocates and I train everyone from newly diagnosed to long-term survivors to clinicians and the number one thing that I ask them is I say, I know that your spirit's there. You've reached out to me. You want to be an advocate, but are you ready? Because, you know, you might think you're ready. And sometimes I'll tell them, we'll start telling your story and they'll start crying. 
And I understand it because I was at that phase too. I would not be able to tell my story without crying. And that's generally a sign that you're not ready. Um, and it's okay to be emotional. Like even now, after all these years of doing public presentations, there's been a few times where I've caught myself by surprise. I'll say something that I've said 10 times before. And for some reason at that moment, I'll choke up. So I'm not saying you have to become a robot without emotion, but in order to be a good advocate, you have to process your own illness first, because as an advocate, you're there to help others. You were there to help others. So within my work, when I go out, whether I have the honor of doing a podcast like I am today, I hope that I'm using my story to interest people in clinical trials and say, here I am now a survivor of over 15 years. I got to see my children grow up. You know, I was worried about seeing them finish elementary school. And now I've seen both of them graduate college and become successful young adults. That's what a clinical trial meant to me. A clinical trial is all about hope. Like when we talk about clinical trials, you know, people used, um, you know, data points. They, you know, they use a lot of industry jargon, you know, retention, accrual, participation. You know, patients aren't thinking that way. Patients are thinking, well, if I get on this clinical trial, am I going to get to see my kids finish elementary school? <laughs> so, you know, sometimes we have to actually change the language of clinical trials. Yeah, and, and it's, it's such an important message to get out, right? Because... There are so many other factors playing in someone's mind. And, and like you said, it's, it's family, it's children. My sister's story is very similar to yours as an age of diagnosis, an age of kids. And, you know, for her trying to process through all of that, I can't even imagine her trying to have to consent to a study, mm-hmm. trying to figure out then how to participate in the study. And, you know, there's as good as they are and as important care as you're getting, there is an extra burden placed on that participant for being in that study. You know, how can sponsors and CROs help reduce that burden so the person you know, who's going through this, as we just talked about, has so many other factors going on in their mind that they can focus on getting well and thinking about those things and still participate in the study? Yeah, I think... Um that that those are all very valid points the patient is dealing with so much their actual disease the fear of death their family members and i would love to see uh, more outreach and support for the caregivers um i mentioned earlier that my husband really helped me with you know understanding the informed consent forms because at the time my brain was so fuzzy i mean and i was you know no matter how many times i read something i'm like oh what i'm gonna i might have might have major heart problems well is cardiology issues later on going to be, you know, worth the risk of me doing this now? So I, I would love to see, um, you know, more support for the caregivers, whoever that might be. It might not be a spouse. It might be a family member. It might be a best friend. Um, and again, just just going back to what what the organizations can do is just make it easier, you know, um, do, does the patient have to travel this distance? Is there a local lab where they can do that? Can they do something through a telephone call versus a diary entry. Oh, and you know, I think health health literacy is a really important factor that that uh, we have to keep in mind is that not everyone is comfortable with some of the tools that are being used for you know to make maybe track your own your own health co- outcomes as you're going through the process. Um, and and one thing too, I want to talk about. I'm thinking now about what else you can do is reaching out to. Um, certain groups. And I had mentioned earlier about um, health equity issues, and it took me back to an organization that I became aware of. Um, they're a, a local African-American group called Sisters Journey. 
And as I mentioned, I live in Connecticut and Yale, Yale New Haven. There's a lot of great hospitals in the state of Connecticut. And of course, we're adjacent to New York, you know, uh, adjacent to Boston. So anyone within Connecticut can travel to any of these you know, sites to get great cancer care. Um, and there was a very well-known physician at one of the Connecticut hospitals who was trying to recruit uh, African-American women to her study with absolutely no luck. And this is a physician with a top-notch reputation. Well, finally, they reached out to this organization called Sisters Journey, which has been in, in Connecticut for a long time, and again, an African-American group. And they reached out to their director, Don White Bracey. And with Don's help in the first year, this physician that was the, the, uh, the head of the clinical research study, her goal was to roll 100 African-American women in five years in this trial. And after she reached out to this local organization, they recruited 135 people in the first year. Wow. So, you know, you, if you go out to the people that are already trusted in the community, so even though this physician and the hospital had a great reputation, it, they just could not recruit from the African-American community. But when they went out to Sister's Journey and to Don White Bracey, um, who I happen to know personally, their numbers went up immediately. So I think, again, too, is that the investigators always have to be going to the people who are influential and who are trusted. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 there's so many factors that go into recruiting and opening trials up and getting more diversity and participation. It's, it's a whole different way of thinking about recruitment and enablement. It's, it's so powerful um, as we hear these different stories and watching slowly this, this behemoth of this marketplace transition um, to be more inclusive and really make change, you know, and, and one of the changes is, is obviously, as we talked about COVID, um, but, you know, the focus of clinical trials is now being placed back on patient centricity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you see the role of patient advocate evolving in clinical trials in this, in this new world? I really think that patient advocates have a much more dominant voice. And what we're seeing now with the patient advocates is their confidence is booming. They're becoming much more vocal and they're actually holding organizations accountable. Um, you know, for example, uh, I mentioned that I have the honor of serving on several national advisory boards where, you know, clinical trials is a topic. And I'm hearing other advocacy heads, you know, saying in public settings, we're not going to accept just a position statement saying that you plan to increase increase your clinical trial offerings, or you plan to in increase diversity, or you plan to do blank, 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 they're going to hold you accountable. It's not as easy as just, will you sign our sign-on letter and get your signature added? These organizations, these individual patient advocates are going to go back and they're going to start following you and tracking you to make sure that your, your words, your actions are actually matching your words. Um, and that's, a, you know, that's really, really big. And patient advocates now um, are, and this is a really strong word, but it's really what I am seeing out there is they are demanding the full respect that they deserve, you know, not only being at the table, but when are you bringing them to the table? You know, and that's something I'm very sensitive to over the years is um, I've certainly been invited to be parts of, you know, really great, impressive, you know, task force or groups. But if they bring me in and they invite me in early, I'm 100% on board. But if I find out now that your group has been, <laughs> you've been doing this for like nine months now, right. you're about to do your photo op, and now you want to make sure that you have a patient advocate, you know, on your, uh, on your author list or in your photo op, I'm suddenly not interested. And a lot of advocates feel that way. 
And even though this was not an issue for me um, in my early days of advocacy, I, it's really evolved and not just related to clinical trials, but in the advocacy space is advocates do want to be compensated um, for their time if others on a work team are being compensated. And I think that's very fair. And that also gets me back to what, what um, can be done to make trials easier for patients is you know, compensate them, make it easy for them, whether it's arranging transportation, giving them a $25 gas car, you know, these are very real needs that keep people and very real issues that keep patients from participating. You said something really interesting just now, Rose, which was, you know, it feels to me, and I'd be curious on your take, is that almost every trial that's being set up needs to have a patient advocate involved in the design, in the structure, and then how it rolls out, and then how they're engaging in other patients to really help ease that burden and, and ease that conversation. Are you seeing much of that happen in the marketplace? With um, just to clarify, I mean, with bringing in the patients earlier, bringing in an advocate or- earlier. Um, yes, yes, I am seeing that. And you know, one of the pushbacks that you know that I've heard from the from the scientific community as well, we don't want to bring the patient in that early because they don't understand trial design. And and right. that you're right, you know, um, they don't, and they don't have to. That's not their role. It's like any other. If you think about it, to use a workplace illustration, your best project teams are where you have someone from marketing, where you have someone from promotions, where you have someone from accounting, <laughs> where you have, you know, you have someone from each discipline and the patient advocate um, doesn't have to understand how to build a trial design. They don't have to understand how to recruit, but they can share the patient experience. Um, and also too, I think this is a good opportunity to, to remind everyone is Advocate is a term that, that basically anybody can use. Like, I don't think a lot of people go around and say, uh, I'm an oncologist or I'm a chemist or I'm an airline pilot because no one would believe you, you know, <laughs> but anybody can call themselves an advocate. So something um, that, that I encourage all organizations to be very careful about is make sure that you're vetting your advocates because anybody can say they're an advocate and their, their experience might be only awareness of their own experience. And if that's what you're looking for, that's great. But there are advocates out there that are literally specialists. Like some advocates, um, you know, are experts in healthcare policy. Some advocates are experts in clinical trial design. I mean, cancer survivors are the general population. You're going to have everyone from high school graduates to cancer survivors with multiple advanced degrees. So I always say, what are you truly looking for? Um, because when you just say, well, we, we need an advocate, you know, you don't want to have a bad experience where you brought someone in because they're very vocal in your community. They're seen as an advocacy leader, but they literally know nothing about clinical trials or, or anything beyond their own experience. So I just have to, you know, put a cautionary word out about that because I've seen that kind of backfire sometimes. And then groups are, are hesitant to place an advocate in an important role. Great point. Rose, you have been an absolute pleasure, and I can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been the highlight of my day, and like I said before, I can't thank you enough for all the work that you were doing and the impact that you're making in communities and in the clinical trial space, so thank you. Thank you, Fred. I really enjoy talking to you, and hopefully we can get people more interested in clinical trials because it is something very hopeful and positive for all of us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Trial Talks. To delve deeper into the insights and information you heard today, visit us at trialtalks.com.